everybody, this is Nathan here with Jake, and you're about to listen to what we call Sound of Sanity 1.0. Now, Jake, what do we mean when we say Sanity 1.0? Well, Sound of Sanity was a show we'd been wanting to do for a really long time, and we'd never really seen our way clear to getting it off the ground. Right, so one day we decided the best way to get it off the ground was just to sit down, hit record, three friends talking into microphones. Since that time, the show has changed and grown a whole lot. The modern version of Sound of Sanity really began to develop around episode 34 on Jordan B. Peterson. Yeah, there's some stuff we're really proud of in this early iteration of this show and some stuff we're possibly, probably, maybe not so proud of. But there's some good stuff and we wanted to leave these up. Plus, we thought it'd be fun for people who know the current show to go back and see how far the show's come. Yeah, fun and maybe sometimes a little humbling. No doubt. Anyway, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the current version of the show. That's right. And meanwhile, please enjoy this episode from the archives. You're now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Hey, welcome to Sanity at the Movies! Maybe you should just get a actual... Clip. You think I should get a just get a sound effect of a like get a, a sound effect, yeah. Of a old fashioned projector humming into life and the It doesn't matter. It's in the past. Uh welcome to that's a line from a movie and today the we're talking still hurts. <laughs> Gotta put you behind in your past. <laughs> hey everybody. Welcome to Sanity at the Movies. This is Nathan Oberson. I am your humble and obedient host, and I couldn't be more excited to be here with you today to talk about one of my personal favorite films, Mary Poppins. And uh, one of my favorite ladies. She she comes down out of the sky. She fixes families. She, she helps dads uh, do dad things and not be lame and uh, fine times had by all. Couldn't be more excited to talk about it. Couldn't be more excited to be joined by my own personal Bert and um, <laughs> Penguin Waiter. <laughs> so you're Mary. And- I'm Mary Poppins, of course. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah. Jake can be Bert. <laughs> the lady needed fear when Jake is near. <laughs> Every day is a lovely day with you, Nathan Abbasson. <laughs> That's exactly right. And Ben can be a Penguin Waiter. Now, let me introduce you guys. We've got the pastor who's a master of talking about movies over there, Jacob Menzel. He's a Jacob Menzel step in time. Jacob Menzel step in time. Never need a reason. Never need a rhyme. Jacob Menzel step in time. <laughs> How you doing, Jake? <laughs> I'm doing great. Over there. There's only one way to introduce him. Now as the ladder of life has been strung, you might think a podcaster's on the bottom most rung. But though I spends me life in the ashes and soot, I've still got Ben Solzer down under my foot. <laughs> yes, wow. <laughs> That's what you think. Chim, chimney, chim, chimney, chim, chim, cherry. Ben turns the knobs and he turns them for me. He's an engineer of all our sound. A finer podcaster can never be found. (laughs) 
Hey, Ben. How's it going? Hi, Nathan. Welcome Good. to Sound of Sanity. Sanity at the movies. We're going to be yeah. talking about Mary Poppins today. You excited? One of your favorite films, I understand. Not really. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> Some of the drama in this episode oh, man. is that... We're going to end up beating up Ben by the time we're done. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Some of the drama. Let's have it. <laughs> Actually, I think what might happen, if I'm Mary Poppins, then perhaps Ben he's is Mr. not Banks. Penguin Waber. Perhaps he's Mr. Banks. And he's he just, saving. He needs That's saving. right. He needs saving. He yeah. Needs, he needs to learn the true magic of... Mary Poppins. Of Mary Poppins. <laughs> yeah. Right. Then I'll be be saved from my glum regiment itself. Your glum regiment itself. Mary yeah, Poppins hating self. That's right. It's that Poppins woman. Everything's topsy-turvy in my world now that she's come. I think Higgledy-Piggledy would be the... There we go. I couldn't think of it. You're looking for... Higgledy-Piggledy is much better. So to get into the context of this film a little bit, but first, let's let's switch it up a little bit. Let's get everyone's Mary Poppins baggage. But Jake has a very expressive <laughs> pose right now. I think he wants to tell us about his Mary Poppins baggage. Go ahead, Jake. I love Mary Poppins. <laughs> I love Julie Andrews. Yes. I was at a uh, party not too long ago, and we had to pick our favorite movie or whatever, and it almost never occurs to me to even think of musicals. Mm-hmm. Man, I could easily be convinced that Sound of Music or Mary Poppins was my favorite uh, yeah. movie of all time. So I love Mary Poppins. I don't know how many times I've watched it, watched it as a kid and loved it. Did you go through a nasty teenage phase where you didn't like Mary Poppins and thought it was no, lame? No, I, just, or you I just went through always... a teenage phase where I forgot that Mary Poppins was a thing. And then you rediscovered And then it. I became a dad and then I was like, oh yeah, I need to share these musicals with my kids because that's fun. And then I did. I was like, yeah, I really love Mary Poppins. So you weren't Julie too Andrews. busy working at no. the bank trying to climb the corporate no, ladder. I was, trying, to... I was trying to be a good dad. Uh, there you yeah, go. That's so right. You, you learned the lessons of Mary yeah. Poppins. As a kid, they were ingrained in me. Exactly. Yeah. Well. Never need to learn those lessons again. Nope. <laughs> just been a perfect uh-huh. father. You take your kids right. on yeah, tight excursions get, and uh, never get bound up in wanting things to just be just so. Just be just so. Never, never want to regiment anything. Never no, no. let your ambitions make you forget about your kid. No. That's good. I'm glad. Yeah. I don't know why the movie is so resonant for you. It doesn't seem like it has much <laughs> I, I know, to offer. I know. That's <laughs> weird, right? <laughs> ben, what's your history with Mary Poppins? I remember watching it a lot as a kid. I don't remember loving it as a kid. I remember liking it and sometimes tolerating it. <laughs> and I felt that way about Sound of Music, too. So you can have that one for oh, free. Oh, brother. Yeah. Go home. Yeah, Listen go to home. Ben. He tolerates Mary Poppins. <laughs> I tolerate it. He tolerates yeah. Julie Andrews. <laughs> right. I have a very specific memory of watching Mary Poppins when I was sick and I must have been five or six and I don't have a lot of memories from that part of the time of my life but one of them is a random watching of a movie so yay thanks brain but I uh, remember it being like three o'clock in the morning and me not being able to sleep because I had a fever or something like that and so Mary Poppins was turned on I remember watching it in the dark with a blanket and just being overwhelmingly comforted by it I think this is a pretty legit great movie and yeah you could Probably talk me into saying it's one of my favorite movies, if not the. It's hard to choose a the. But in terms, if you said favorite musical, I'm trying to think if anything else would top it. I love the score. My Fair Lady. I love the songs. Sound of Music. My Fair Lady wouldn't top it for me. Fiddler on the Roof. I don't really care for, I do like my, my, uh, my Fair Lady, but it's not my favorite. Fiddler on the Roof, definitely not. Too sad, long. and so The whole second so, half. The whole second yeah. half is so depressing. I, I love it. It's good, but it's right. not my favorite. What do I just want to turn on just to be happy for a few hours? Mary Poppins would be near the top. That's where we stop. (laughs) (laughs) That's a line from the movie. (laughs) Exactly. So, that's the baggage. 
Ben, how'd you like to hear me talk about context for like five hours? I'd like that a lot, Nathan. <laughs> okay, I've great. got five hours to spare as it happens. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Mary Poppins. I'm actually not going to talk too much about the context of this movie in terms of how it was made and stuff like that, because I think it's pretty obvious it was made by the Walt Disney Corporation, and we all kind of know what that means. It was made by Walt Disney at the height of his powers. The buck definitely would have stopped with Mr. Disney. He had a whole team of artists and craftsmen and all the best that money could buy at that time. It was made two years before it was released at least two years before Walt Disney died so and he died fairly young at age 65 so the movie really was made at the absolute height of Walt Disney's power and prestige and everything else he was on the king of the world everybody would he would have been a household name everybody knew who Walt Disney was it was one of his most popular movies so that's pretty much all we need to know about the making of the movie I mean we could talk about you know the director and all that but who cares it was made by the Disney machine at the height of the Disney machine's power what I think is more interesting is to talk about the three arguably three or four people that are responsible for this movie and the way it feels so I want to talk about them but first just a, some real broad overstrokes overstrokes is that a word Ben are we no. happy with the word overstrokes I like it but it's not a word it's not a word okay what word was I trying to say Broad strokes. Broad I think strokes. I would have done it. Yes, yes. There we go. Uh, just some real broad strokes about the movie. Released in 1964. Does anyone know what happened in 1964 that completely redefined popular culture as we know it? Because there's something that happened that will just give you some context for 1964 that's way bigger and way more important to popular culture in the 20th century. No looking it up. That'll tell you everything you need to know about what was going on in the world in 1964. Nope. Anybody, you want to take a guess? 1964. I don't want to sound dumb. I bet, you, I bet you'll be right. It's pop culture. It's like, it's pop culture thing. But arguably a very important pop culture thing happened. You got a guess? Color television? No. Color <laughs> television would have been... I want to say this is one of the top five most important things that happened in the 20th century, maybe, pop culture-wise. It involves some musicians. The British invasion? Yes, indeed. That's what I was I was wondering, yeah. And what, what started the British invasion? Beatles? The Beatles! The Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show in February 1964 and changed the world and youth culture and everything. And every movie that we watch, every music that we listen to, everything is different because of that. So that's what happened in 1964. I don't know what you want to say about that, if anything, but I just thought that was some interesting context for what 1964 is, because it's kind of weird to think about where these movies... You know, Mary Poppins just feels like an old kind of timeless movie, but actually it happened in a very tumultuous time. And maybe we could even argue that Mary Poppins was popular because, you know, you have all these kind of, I want to say, almost conservative value, you know, family, all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, youth culture is going crazy. The sexual revolution starting the 19, the actual, what we think of as the 1960s are actually, you know, when we say the 1960s, we think about hippies and free love and all that. That wasn't actually happening in 1960, the year 1960. It really didn't start to happen until the 60s got going in 1960. Maybe we can make all kind. I don't know, Ben. I'm not a I'm not a sociologist, but it's kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? Yeah, I haven't thought about it before. Well, there's some context for night the great year of 1964. Mary Poppins, very popular movie, came out in August of that year. Was nominated for 13 Oscars, including Best Picture. Does anybody know what won Best Picture that year? My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady, correct. Do you, does anybody want to take a guess or does anybody know what Mary Poppins won five Oscars? Does, do you guys know what they are? Best uh, Lead Actress. Best Lead Actress for Julie Andrews, absolutely. Supporting Dick Van Dyke. Nope. No? Sadly. Score. 
Yes, absolutely. Score. Something related to that. Thing. Best song? Yes, best song. Oh, Anybody have a, want to guess what song? I wasn't sure what song it was going to be, huh. and I wouldn't have guessed the one that they chose, although it, is, it might be my favorite song from the score. Feed the Birds? It's not Feed the Birds. Spoonful of Sugar? Nope. Super Cow? Nope. Chim Chimney? Chim Chimney, which I think might be my favorite song. It's it's the prettiest song, maybe the most evocative song in the score, for me at least, but it's not the one I would have thought it would have been. Super Califragilistic, Expialidocious, or Spoonful of Sugar, or even Feed the Birds for the more dramatic melody. I was just sort of trying to cue off of unexpected and what might be your favorite <laughs> i didn't know <laughs> i don't know it would have to be one of those four i mean it's not going to be i love to laugh or if there's a song that i i am going to forget is is in the movie it's i love to laugh right or or what's... a scene that i'm going to forget is in the movie it's uncle albert is it albert yeah it is uncle it's uncle albert. albert yeah uncle albert scene there's yeah. that scene and then there's that weird song that she sings to make them fall asleep i can never remember how that stay song awake goes. yeah stay awake it's just i, I don't know, i get it I always like it when it happens, but yeah, I, I can't remember any of the words. Yeah, either. I couldn't even hum Don't the nod and tune dream. for that one. Um, so yeah, it won Best Actress for Julie Andrews, Best Score, Best Editing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Song for Chim Chimney. But what I really, what I really think will be more helpful for our discussion is to talk about three, kind of four of the people that are responsible for this movie. The first one, well, Ben, let me tell you a tale. Tell me a tale, Nathan. We go now to Queensland, Australia in 1907. Huh. A little girl named Lyndon. She went by Lyndon, Ben. I don't know what that means or why she would have went by Lyndon. I don't know either. That was her middle name. Her full name was Helen Lyndon Goff. And she was born in Australia in 1899. And her father, Ben, he was a drunkard. He was a drunkard. He drank and drank and drank until he died. Died of dissipation and drunkenness. He was a bank manager for the Australian Joint Stock Bank in Queensland, but he could not stop drinking, which displeased very much the old men that ran this Australian bank in Queensland, Australia. So they actually demoted him from a bank manager to a bank clerk. In 1907, in his 40s, this man, his name was Travers Robert Goff, was afraid because the economy was bad and his work was bad and he couldn't stop drinking. He was afraid that he was going to lose his job or get demoted again. He was so full of fear and dissipation and alcohol that he got a fever and he died, leaving behind a wife and three children, the oldest of whom was little Lyndon, and she was would have been seven. So he didn't leave any money. His wife actually had brought a decent inheritance into the marriage, but it was all gone by that time. So the story goes that this big thunderstorm rolls in. It's dark and the rain is pelting down and everything's terrible. And mom gets up going crazy, crazy with grief over her husband who's just died basically of drunkenness and left them destitute, gets up and screams that she's going to go and throw herself in the river and runs out the door into the rain. Little seven-year-old Lyndon is left all alone with her scared little sisters. She goes and she gets a quilt. She puts it around her sisters. They sit in a little huddle, and she begins to tell them a story. And the story is of a magical white flying horse. Be nice if it was a story of a Mary Poppins nanny, but it's it's not. It's a story of a magical white flying horse. But this little girl would say that that's when she started to become an author, or at least that's what her biographers will say. She did. She said very little about her past because she went on to completely 
reinvent herself in the 1920s. She became, first of all, she changed her name to P.L. Travers, Pamela Lyndon Travers. So she took her father's first name and made it into her last name. She would often tell people that her father had been a dashing Irish sugarcane plantation owner in Australia. She became a Shakespearean actress, a journalist, an author. She traveled around in Australia doing acting gigs and eventually landed in London. And in 1934, she published her first book about the stern and pompous nanny Mary Poppins. But you need to, the things you need to know about P.L. Travers, she's a weird lady. She was an actress at a time when that still what wouldn't have been the most re- reputable. I'd say today it's not the most reputable. <laughs> Has it ever been? <laughs> Has it ever been? Yeah. <laughs> was into the occult. She was into theosophy. There's a lot of people that say she was something of a sexual adventuress and uh, she never married. She actually adopted a relative's son out of poverty. And that's even, that's kind of a weird, sad story because there were twin sons that were born to this relative. I'm not sure exactly what the relationship is, but this, this family in poverty has twin sons. P.L. Travers promises to adopt both of them gets there so the story goes i wasn't actually able to source this well but so i i hope this is true but the story i read said that she gets there and she says that her astrologer told her she should only take one of the kids so that's the kind of lady that she was and then she picked which one by flipping a tarot card or something (laughs) Something like that that. yeah so she condemns one of the twins to poverty forever and she takes the other one as soon as she realized that this was a baby that was going to cry she said she considered sending him to an orphanage she later would send him to a boarding school. I think, I mean, it's always fun with these children's authors to discover all the dark secrets and stuff. And P.L. Travers had her share. It's not fair to say that everything was terrible with this kid, but I, I think they got along okay once he was in his 20s. But she wasn't a great mom, Not the, certainly not the kind of mom that you'd want the author of Mary Poppins to be. Jake was saying before we started that people have tried to cast her as a lesbian. That wouldn't surprise me at all. It also wouldn't surprise me if she wasn't. Yeah, I mean... I've read things where it, they just just state issues in long-term relationships, and I read other things that said, well, she, she lives with a woman for 10 years, but she was single, and they were both single, and she also dated men. So I've seen both things. The other thing about that boy that I did read is that like when he was 17, his twin brother showed up. Oh, really? Did you read that? No. Yeah, so when he was 17, his twin brother showed up, Travers sent him away, wasn't going to let him see. Because she raised him to think that he he was her natural son right. and that her dad died tragically a long time ago. Anyhow, the, t- the twin brothers ended up getting together and it wrecked both their lives. <laughs> like, And they both became alcoholics and died young. So that's the wonderful, magical story of P.L. Travers. She was pretty cagey about her own life, so some of that stuff may be hearsay. And yeah. anytime anyone's famous, and we're going to get to talk about this with Walt Disney too, anytime anyone's famous for sweetness and light, anytime that's their brand, the whole world wants to figure out what the skeletons in the closet are. Some of that might, might be exaggerated. I, I certainly read my share in researching this of hit pieces that just wanted to be like, the nine things that you didn't know about the author of Mary Poppins. And point is, she's a weird lady and she she created Mary Poppins. I have not read Mary Poppins. Jake, have you read Mary Poppins? Nope. I have not read Mary Poppins. There were eight novels. The last one was published, I think, in 1988. Benjamin, you have read Mary Poppins, right? Uh, I read the first one when I was a kid. What, what barely, did you tell about it? You don't remember much? I just, I remember thinking it was nothing like the movie. The feeling, the whole tone of the books is, of that book at least, was not like the movie. Some, there were similar episodes, but yeah, it's hard to describe. I'll be glad to read some excerpts here from the Amazon preview page. Let's read. Let's hear some excerpts from you, the you Amazon preview page. You want to hear an excerpt? Page. Yes, please. Oh, here we go. Mary Poppins has just been uh, hired, or almost. 
Why, children, said Mrs. Banks, noticing them suddenly. What are you doing there? This is your new nurse, Mary Poppins. Jane, Michael, say how do you do? And these, she waved her hand at the babies in their cots, are the twins. Not appearing in this film. Mary Poppins regarded them steadily, looking from one to the other as though she were making up her mind whether she liked them or not. Will we do? said Michael. Michael, don't be naughty, said his mother. Mary Poppins continued to regard the four children searchingly, then with a long, loud sniff that seemed to indicate that she had making up that she had made up her mind. She said, I'll take the position. And that's not quite the sweetness and light of Julie Andrews. Although I will say, I could see the Julie Andrews character as scripted doing that. It's just that when sure. Julie Andrews does the sniff, it's like, oh, how sweet. That's kind of cute. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not the same feeling. Yeah, it's not the same feeling, that, but no. just reading the book, no, you would not imagine Mary Poppins. You'd imagine a kind of scary older lady. Yeah. Mary Poppins does her magical stuff with the children, and she gives them their nighttime medicine that changes into delicious things in their mouth. And... <laughs> But even but every scene has that same feeling of strangeness, and Mary Poppins is stern. But Mary Poppins, her face as stern as before, was pouring out a dose for Jane. Stern, so sternness is just not the way that we see Julie Andrews' face. No. It's not stern. Although I will say, when I was a kid, when I was a five-year-old watching Mary Poppins, I did think of her as stern. When I watch it now, I'm just You like, don't Aw. think of her as being, though, uh, warm or ch- especially cheerful. That's that's true. There is something firm about her. Yeah. Something other. You mean as played by Julie Andrews? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you don't agree. because what you don't at the very least what you don't think of her as is as motherly. I mean, she's always going to know better than everyone. She's going to be a little censorious about them laughing on the ceiling. Right. She's going to be you're going to get to the end of the day and she's going to deny that you did anything extraordinary. Right. But you always kind of sense the, the hidden smile in Julie Andrews' performance. Oh, yeah. Like, she loves the kids. She's into it. She enjoys. It's also a loving purpose. Right. <laughs> and that, that may be the case with the Mary Poppins in the book as well. I just can't remember. The other thing that I read in preparing for this show was that P.L. Travers' books are a huge influence on J.K. Rowling, down to the fact that J.K. Rowling did her name with the same formula, J.K. Rowling, P.L. Travers, initial, initial, last name. I don't know what to, I don't know Mary Poppins well enough to know what the, how much greater the influence was. I do know that P.L. Travers was into the occult and into theosophy and into weird stuff like that. I'm not sure how much of that finds its way into Mary Poppins. Probably not a lot for the books to have been as popular and beloved as they are, but I, I did read some somewhere that in the books and and people if you're mary poppins books fans let us know tell us your thoughts because i'm 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 pleading ignorance here but i did read in an article that mary poppins often gets them into dangerous situations that she doesn't seem overly concerned about which is something that you only get a really little bit of in the movie but you know like maybe their their carousel horses will go too fast or they might be stuck on the ceiling for a little while but nobody's ever really in any kind of Danger. danger yeah Anyway, that's P.L. Travers. Walt Disney's daughters really loved the books, and Disney was after her from the early 1940s, but she was always scared to have a film made. She always thought he was going to mess it up. She ended up demanding script approval. Walt Disney gave it to her, but what he didn't give her was final cut approval. So he said, yeah, Pamela, you can sign off on the script. She was satisfied and let him make his movie, but that was really Disney being a cagey businessman, which Walt Disney was nothing if not a cagey (laughs) businessman, because he then did whatever he wanted and said, well, yeah, sure, you can sign off on the script, but... Scripts, you know... Scripts change. Scripts change. Things happen when you get, you know, the cameras start rolling. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so... Whole scenes and songs can just find their way into into the film. <laughs> they weren't s- 
script it. We're part of the final script. <laughs> right. <laughs> so she probably saw a script at some point. She probably signed off on it. And then Walt Disney went and made exactly the movie that he wanted to make without much concern about how she felt about it. And she hated it. She really hated it, which is not the idea that you'll get from the quite fun to watch, but not very historical movie that the Walt Disney did, which is basically just <laughs> Walt Disney hagiography um, <laughs> called Saving Mr. Banks, which is a fun movie. And uh, if you want to just know the broad strokes of P.L. Travers and Walt Disney's relationship, it, it, you can learn, and her history with her drunk father and all that, you can learn some stuff from that movie, but you have to be careful because basically the way that movie ends is Walt Disney has saved the world by reuniting every father with every son and every daughter through making Mary Poppins and P.L. Travers sits in the theater and weeps for her lost childhood. And uh, Walt Disney, I think, pats her on the shoulder from behind as the movie plays and says, it's okay, it'll be okay or something. Uh, <laughs> the true fact of the matter is that P.L. Travers wept tears of bitter anger <laughs> through the movie because she hated it so much. She hated it. She actually went up to Walt Disney at the premiere and begged him to get rid of the Penguin Waiters because she hated the Penguin Waiters so much. She was still begging him to make changes. And he actually said to her, Pamela, that ship has sailed and then turned and walked away. So that their real relationship was contentious. She always hated him. She always hated the movie. That's a little bit of Walt Disney's business acumen. But we'll We'll get back to him. I want to talk a little bit about Julie Andrews. Her life is really interesting if you look at it because her upbringing was pretty sad. She mm-hmm. was born because her mom had an affair with a dude. Didn't then her really mom, know who her dad was growing yeah, up. Yeah, she didn't really know. She found out years later. Her mom divorced Julie Andrews' original dad, who she later found out was not her blood dad. But then she ended up growing up with a stepdad that she called dad. Right. Who found his way drunkenly into her bedroom at night. Yeah, she talks about having to put a lock on her door. But her uh, mom and her stepdad, the evil stepdad, um, truly evil stepdad, were um, musical performers. And so young Julie uh, played with them. Step Evil stepdad actually did pay for music lessons for her. And she was basically just blessed by God with a wonderful four-octave, clear-as-crystal voice. That lots of people thought was made for the opera house. She couldn't... She never thought that she was made for the opera house. What she, she would self-deprecatingly say that her voice was too thin for the opera house. This, what some people would say the real story is, is that she couldn't play tragedy. Yeah. Well, she I didn't have the emotional strength to play sad parts. She also said at some point, I think that she only liked to, she only really liked to do upbeat songs. She didn't, she didn't care for having to do sadder, more emotional songs. Which and I there think. are stories of her falling apart during sad songs. Right. And not being able to get through them. So she's a weird, it's, it's interesting. It's, I think the, the thing that you have to understand about her is how rough her upbringing really was with that stepdad coming into her room and stuff, because the fact that she's able to just play innocence personified in two classic movies, Sound of Music, Mary Poppins, is just, I don't know, it's fascinating to me. Like, because you can't, it's the kind of thing that you can't fake. It's like in your eyes, it's in your manner. It's, 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 it's part of who you are. And it's not that Mary, Mary Poppins, I call her Mary Poppins. <laughs> it's not that Julie Andrews was sinless at all, but it's just interesting that she was able to play those kinds of characters given an upbringing that really. Yeah, I think that if the more you kind of know about her history, the more that 
if you look for it, you can see a, that an undertone of sadness that sort of makes everything sweet mm-hmm. in her performances. Well, I think maybe we'll talk about that later. I think that's really the key to Sound of Music and Mary Poppins is that... Yeah, especially Sound of Music. Yeah, especially Sound of Music. They don't actually come off as maudlin and there's so many places where they could be, but it is because Julie Andrews has that perfect control and that perfect little just dollop of sadness that or melancholy. It's just there under the surface and it really does, it, it, it makes the whole thing thing not be saccharine yeah and, and it's so, it works. so easy for mary pop or mary pop, i can really keep calling her mary poppins <laughs> that's a testament <laughs> to her genius i think but um it'd be so easy for us to hate there are people that are just cynical and hate julie andrews now as the purveyor of spoonfuls of sugar for generations now but i think most people love julie andrews and she pulled it off she was able to do those kinds of roles who knows what makes a person able to do that kind of thing but it's very subtle and it's very it takes real talent and it takes real just gifts given to you by providence there's not really a lot more to her story before we come to mary poppins she made her fame at the age of 19 on broadway she originated the role of eliza doolittle in my fair lady the very famous story is that jack warner would not hire her for the movie of my fair lady which came out the same year as mary poppins and won the oscar like we talked about earlier for best picture so jack warner basically because he wanted a name actress he wanted audrey hepburn who couldn't sing whose part had to be dubbed he he denied Julie Andrews the opportunity to play the play in the movie version the role that she was famous for the role that she had originated the role that any good producer I think would have just hired her to play the part and then you hire a, a star to play opposite you know I mean there's ways to do that Jack Warner messed up it's one of the weird things of cinema history that he didn't hire Julie Andrews to play Eliza Doolittle but while Disney of course he doesn't have to hire stars because the only star that Walt Disney needs is himself. He is the brand. When you go to see a Disney movie, you're not going because it features a celebrity. You're going because it's a Walt Disney movie and you know that that name above the title promises you entertainment. So he can cast whoever he wants. And he saw Julie Andrews in a performance and decided to cast her that she'd be the perfect Mary Poppins. And so she ended up winning the Oscar for Best Actress the year that Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady (laughs) duked it out. And Audrey Hepburn wasn't even nominated. So as sweet as Julie Andrews is, I'm sure she must have felt <laughs> a little bit of vindication. <laughs> a little there. bit of vindication, <laughs> and <laughs> from hell's heart, she stabbed at <laughs> poor Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> it's not Audrey Hepburn's fault. It's Jack Warner is really the villain of. The, I mean, I mean, what? And there's no actress that wouldn't jump to play Eliza Doolittle. That was one of the great roles of the year, as was Mary Poppins, as it turned out. Still made a fantastic film My yeah lady. Uh, and i think uh, i'm glad it worked out that way because i think audrey hepburn's great and yes she's dubbed and that's a little weird but it's okay the person that dubbed her sure can sing and my fair lady a lot of people that, that say that's their favorite musical i think it's people that don't like musicals like my fair lady more because it's it's got that kind of cynical streak to it that they like maybe but if you just like joyful if you're the kind of person that liked the opening to la la land then i dare say you'll probably like Mary Poppins better than you like My Fair Lady because it's just big and joyful and kind of musical-y. But if you're the kind of person that couldn't stand the opening to La La Land, but then you liked the rest of it when they were moping around, then maybe you like My Fair Lady better. That's my theory, Ben. Hmm. I haven't seen La La Land, Nathan. I I don't have a comment. You should? Should I? I think. I don't know. It's not as family-friendly as you may think a musical should be. No, it's a movie for adults. It's a movie for adults. I've not shown it to my kids. But you've shown some of the numbers to your kids. Oh, yeah. I've shown some of the numbers to my kids, and 
they think those are cool and fun. Anyway, I don't know. Maybe one day we'll and talk. dropping some language that you exactly one piece of language, which if they'd cut out, they probably could have gotten a PG. But <laughs> whatever. Yeah, it was dumb. That dumb was of dumb. them. Yeah. Well, yeah. Whatever. Anyway, that's La La Land. <laughs> I don't remember why we were talking about that. Uh, real quick, Dick Van Dyke. Julie Andrews, interesting life. You can read about it. She lost her voice because of a botched operation, I think for some polyps in her throat or something like that. Basically, in one fell swoop, she couldn't sing anymore because some doctor just messed up something that should have been simple. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, maybe one of the tragedies, although of the of the silver screen and the musicals, although as Jake pointed out before the we start rolled mic, maybe that just spared us a bunch of Barbara Streisand style like Christmas albums, Christmas albums and you know, whatever <laughs> else bugging us all once she's past her prime. And recast, um, yeah, recasting uh, Mary Poppins and the Sound of Music in a bad light or something. Right, exactly. She's been, I mean, she's she certainly preserves an aura of elegance and dignity. Yeah, she's one of those people that it's always nice to see, even when it's like Princess Diaries or her doing the voice for one of those dumb animated movies or something like that. It's, it's just like, she feels like Hollywood royalty at this yeah. point. She yeah. just is, she'll always be Mary Poppins and Maria. You just can't, you can't help but think of her that way. I mean, she divorced her first husband. She did have a long marriage with Blake Edwards, the guy that directed all the way till his death, which wasn't that many years ago, the guy that directed all the Pink Panther movies and all that kind of stuff, famous kind of comedic director. So... I don't know about Julie Andrews. She's certainly not the sweetness and light that she played in on the silver screen. But man, she did have those gifts to just play those parts in two movies that'll probably be around as long as movies are around. Mm -hmm. And then it's just fascinating. You know, you can't help but just think about God's providence. Like she had it and then it was gone and she never had it again. Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke completely self-taught, just like you'd hope that Dick Van Dyke would be, I think. Just if you, if you wanted to make up a story for Dick Van Dyke, you'd make up the story that he was born in a small Midwestern town and decided that he was going to be a song and dance and comedian man and made himself into one. And that's exactly what he did, which is wonderful, I think. He started out as a radio DJ, then joined a comedy team, then tried out for audition for Broadway, got the part in Bye Bye Birdie, which is a really stupid old musical movie if you want to watch a stupid, uh, which you probably shouldn't because what you'll end up watching is Anne Margaret gyrating around for uh, nine hours. Um, the movie's not actually nine hours long. That was an exaggeration. Ben, oh. should not have believed it. It's more like Thanks, an Nathan. hour and a half or something like that. If you hadn't clarified... <laughs> Oh, man. But uh, it's a, a, a very dumb movie. Um, but that was Dick Van Dyke's first movie because he originated the role of whatever the character's name in Bye Bye Birdie is on Broadway. And he learned to dance. I think the story goes that he didn't know how to dance auditioned for the part, knowing that it would be a dancing part, did a little fake soft shoe. And the guy said, you've got the part, you've got it. And he was like, ah, but I don't know how to dance. And they're like, we'll teach you to dance. And he's like, okay, and that's Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke is in some ways just as lovable as you'd want him to be the kind of guy that's just gonna, you know, learn how to dance and learn how to do pratfalls and do whatever it takes. He's a very kind of old fashioned showbiz kind of vaudeville kind of a guy that can just do a little bit of everything. And you don't have those guys. One of the problem with La La Land is that Ryan Gosling is in fact not one of those guys and therefore cannot dance. And Emma Stone's really not one of those girls and neither one of them can really sing or dance. They're both much better actors than Dick Van Dyke ever wanted to be. So they can kind Gosling of can it. learn to fake that piano. Yeah. 
they can they can learn to fake it. But what you don't have is that old Hollywood, old vaudeville kind of performance energy where these people, Fred Astaire, like Gene Kelly, like Dick Van Dyke, just knew how to do. They could act, they could dance, they could sing, they could play a romantic scene, they could play a comedy scene, they had good comedy timing. Dick Van Dyke can just do a little bit of ever, of everything. And what I love particularly about Dick Van Dyke, maybe we'll talk about this more, is that he's he's got a little bit of weight to him. Like he's a little bit more manly. He's a little. He's got a little bit more gravitas to him when he plays those emotional scenes, like with Mr. Banks towards the end of the movie. Uh, if you if you imagine someone like Danny Kaye or Donald O'Connor, the you know uh, the make him laugh guy from Singing in the Rain, those other guys that are song and dance men doing the similar scenes. It's like those guys can't actually. Those guys weren't built. They don't have the faces. They don't have the physical presence. They don't have the weight to them to do anything but comedy. But Dick Van Dyke can actually bring the pathos and bring the. Mm-hmm. Just bring a little extra, like you wouldn't mind Dick Van Dyke. You wouldn't want Danny Kaye to be your dad because he'd mess everything up. But Dick Van Dyke could be your dad, you know. Dick Van Dyke did say just this year or last year, 2017, he got an award from BAFTA, the British Association of Film and Television, whatever. And he said to them all, I appreciate this opportunity to apologize to the members of BAFTA for inflicting on them the most atrocious Cockney accent in the history of cinema. So <laughs> he knows <laughs> he's not unaware. <laughs> so that's Nick Van Dyke. He's just a fun guy. But the other person we need to talk to talk about is Mr. Walt Disney, the All great right. Walt Disney, the person that actually is responsible for this movie. The buck definitely stopped, not with P.L. Travers, not with Julie Andrews, not with Dick Van Dyke, but with Mr. Disney. And here's a quote I found from him that I think is pretty much sums him up. All right, quote, all right, I'm corny, but I think there's just about 140 million people in this country that are just as corny as I am. That's Walt Disney. Knows what the people wants, and he knows how to give it to them, and he made a lot of money. But I think... I don't know. I'm going to contend that he wasn't that bad of a guy for a, you know, pagan guy that completely disnified our culture and ruined everything. Um. <laughs> as far as guys that ruin cultures go, he's... <laughs> As far as people that bring down the morality of an entire civilization, not such a bad guy. Well, he is one of those guys, like I was talking about earlier with Julie Andrews, with all these people, but certainly with Walt Disney, he was such... He's been such a purveyor of sweetness and light. People want to know what those skeletons are. They want to know what his dark secrets are. You can find exposés of Disney the racist, Disney the Nazi sympathizer, Disney the sexist, all these things. I just don't think they're true. I think Disney was a pretty decent kind of a man, and I don't think he had a lot of baggage with his parents or with his mother or with his father or anything else. I think he was just kind of a normal mid-century, 20th century guy. Certainly, if you're coming at it from the point of view of a progressive liberal person who thinks that if anyone in the 1950s talked like someone from the 1950s would talk about a black person and used the words like they would use, then you can find things that you will say are very damning about Disney. But actually, he was a fairly progressive guy who maybe had some weird opinions of his, you know, he's a man of his time. And so you can find things that if you just want to hold it to the standard of political correctness now, you can judge Disney for them. But 
you can't really find anything that I think belies any kind of true racism or anything else that you might want to accuse Disney of. He was born in 1901 in Chicago. He spent his childhood in Kansas City, Missouri. His father was a farmer and a construction contractor. His name was Elias Disney. He was famously stern and had a temper. The boys got out of line. He would punish them with a switch. People have made all kinds of things out of that. Oh, Walt Disney spent his life, you know, trying to... We just watched a clip from the movie Saving Mr. Banks, the the, the clip that makes every... I saw the movie in the theater. Everyone sat in the theater and cried during this clip. Walt Disney tells P.L. Travers how he just had to make Mary Poppins because... Because um, he had to save his dad and how... He wants to remember... He wants to, He wants a happy ending for his dad. He wants his memory of his dad, his dad's sternness to be replaced. Right. By a sal- dad's salvation. For, right, right, right. And people have made... I think there might be a little bit to it, but I think people take it way too far. For one thing, people just assume that Elias Disney was a terrible guy because we hear about things like a, he took a switch to his boys and we're just like, oh, no. But it's like, I think he was just a normal dad for the era, you know? I mean, I think he was a, a little bit stern. He was definitely religious, Definitely conservative, religious, congregationalist, would sometimes preach at his congregational church, which I think he was the treasurer for, or maybe his wife was. They were very involved in their church, would preach these stern sermons. And so you can see how Walt Disney may have spent his life reacting against that in some ways. But I think he loved his dad and had a decently okay relationship with a 19th or century style. You know what I'm saying? Like it's. Yeah, I'm not even sure I'm willing to believe based on what you told me that he was all that cold. Yeah, I think um, Disney ended up buying a house. Actually, if you want the one weird piece of baggage that Disney may have had about his parents is that Disney actually kind of secondhand accidentally killed his mom. (laughs) Not exactly, but what happened was, well, so I should say Flora Disney, his mom, sweet, lovable, wonderful lady, mitigated a lot of tension between the boys and whatever was tense in Walt's relationship with his dad. His mom was just, you know, what you'd want Walt Disney's mom to be. But uh, when Snow White became a hit, Roy and Walt bought their parents a house and had had, you know, had it built for them, whatever. The construction people did a bad job on the furnace. His mom actually died of carbon monoxide poisoning. And so Walt Disney definitely did carry that guilt with him. Yeah. When his daughter, Sharon, asked him where her par- her grandparents were buried, he said, I don't want to talk about it, famously. People have tried again to read all kinds of like, oh, why isn't there, why aren't there ever any moms in Disney movies? It's because Walt Disney felt so, well, no, actually it's because there weren't any moms in all those classic fairy tales. And there are moms in lots of Disney movies, including the one we're talking about today. But if you want the closest thing to just some juicy Freudian kind of Disney, also Snow White was already out. Disney was already on his trajectory. He was already making fairy tale. Like, I don't really think his mom's death completely influenced. But if you want the closest thing to a juicy Freudian kind of thing, it would be Walt Disney sort of was accidentally carried the guilt of his mom's death for a good chunk of his life and wouldn't didn't want to talk about it. He did, as they talk about in the Saving Mr. Banks movie, he did, uh, his dad owned a paper route that he would go out on in the cold Missouri. Uh, so uh, he's very much... The self-made man, he would do this paper route uh, twice a day, thousand papers with his brother Roy, while taking courses at the Kansas City Art Institute, also a correspondence course in cartooning. Walt Disney decided he wanted to be some kind of a cartoonist pretty early in life and took these art courses, uh, went that direction. Yeah, he actually, his mother, I believe, helped him forge his ID to join the Red Cross during World War One. But by the time he was involved in that, arms, armistice had already happened, so he didn't actually see any action. But he got back 
company joined something called the Presbyn Rubin Commercial Arts Studio, which uh, led him to a Kansas City, the Kansas City Film Ad Company early in his life, which was doing cutout animations, what we think of South Park as being the like where you're actually moving the pieces around on the paper. You have little cutouts mm-hmm. that you're moving around. So that was the first animation that Disney was exposed to at this company that he was working as, as he would have been working initially as a commercial illustrator, just drawing little cartoons and, you know, not moving cartoons, but just like things that could go in newspaper ads, stuff like that. So he goes to this company that's doing cutout animations, these really crude cutout anim- animations, and he sees what they're doing and he gets that gets him interested in animation and also gets him interested in what other kinds of animation there are. And he didn't invent any of this stuff. He just perfected it. He quickly realized that the future was in what's called cell animation, which is what all those Disney movies were done. And what that is is layers of cells where you can, I mean, you guys have surely seen this in like the behind the scenes things. You have the cell that has I went the back to, uh, I remember going to Disney World and there's a little workshop place there. I was, I was little, so it's memories are fuzzy, but yeah, they explained it all and you paint it on cells yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, you have, you do a cell with the background and then you do it like if there's, like if it's the animation is of Jake sitting in his chair and then Nathan is dancing around Jake. What we do is we do the background. We do the, on one, on one cell, we do the chair on another cell. We do Jake sitting there there glumly in the next cell and then all we have we can keep all those cells because nothing's moving and all we can do is swap out the cells that have nathan dancing around so it's a way of having these different layers and only having to actually animate the layers that need to be changed and it's just a sophisticated way to do the kind of animation that walt disney ended up becoming uh, synonymous with famous for formed a company and started to do little animation little animated movies his first series was like alice in wonderland and it was half real life and half of the cell animation kind of stuff uh pretty crude but began to get some play in local markets moved to california founded the walt disney company i don't i think it was actually called the walt disney company at that time but he founded it with his brother roy they began to do these animated movies and in 1927 at the at age 26 disney created his iconic hit animated character oswald the lucky rabbit Oh, Oswald. Oh, Oswald. You guys love Oswald the Lucky Rabbit? Oh, yeah. That's who I always think of when I think of Walt Disney. The great Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Uh, This was actually... Just by a whim of history, this could have been who we remember, who we remembered as Mickey Mouse. This was his first character that was just going to be the character. But then, like they had a contract with Universal, they left Universal Pictures. Universal retained the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. So the story is Disney's on the train coming from that meeting, and he starts to sketch a mouse. Mortimer Mouse was what it was called. But Mrs. Disney, his uh, Walt Disney's wife, whom he was married to all his life, which is always nice to find out that one of these celebrity people was married to their wife all their life. Had two daughters, seemed fairly happy as far as I could tell, and normal. No skeletons there that I know of. His wife said Mortimer was too snobby, so they changed it to Mickey. And Walt himself did the voice until 1947 for Mickey Mouse. And really, the rest is kind of history. In 1934, Walt Disney decided that he was going to do a full-length animated movie featuring human characters like Snow White. The movie didn't come out until 1938, and everybody mocked it. And I mean, it's just the most perfect. I'm surprised that they haven't made a movie about 
about this because it's just a wonderful story of like it was like it's like Noah building his ark and everybody laughing because they don't know what rain is. Disney was doing this thing and everybody just it was it was literally called in the trade papers Disney's folly was what they called it. Like this was going to break him. It was going to destroy him. It was the stupidest idea that he was putting all his money. He should just do these little Mickey Mouse cartoons. That's all the animation that anyone's ever going to be interested in. And then of course in 1938 Snow White comes out and it changes everything and it's a massive hit and everybody loves it and it's great and it still holds up to this day. I love Snow White. It's interesting and then the rest really is history. He just built his empire and did lots of movies. It's interesting I think to sort out the difference because like if you grew up, you guys probably grew up like I did, you had like the VHSs that came in the white boxes that you could, plastic boxes that you could open up and there'd probably be a trailer before the movie for like, you know, this classic Disney movie is coming out of the vault again and you it'll be available for a limited time and yep. they kind of have cast their whole history as being so magical and you just get the idea watching those things that everything was a huge success the fact is Pinocchio and Fantasia both lost money <laughs> totally, we totally think of them as classic films but they lost money part of that may have just been because World War II was winding up and the European market was really dwindling but uh, those those movies both lost money I think it's too bad that those movies lost money because those movies are really scary and stark and kind of primordial, I want to say, in a way that like all the sort of rough age edges ended up getting sanded off by the time of uh, Dumbo is still pretty scary. But then by 1950, we were doing Cinderella and Cinderella is so vanilla compared to those early movies. And it's just too bad. I like to think it's, it's interesting to think what would have happened if things like Pinocchio and Fantasia would have made tons of money. Might Walt Disney have done a fairy, more classic fairy tale, more scary, more. And Walt Disney was always a good businessman. He was always going to have bumbling dwarves and funny slapstick comedy for the he's never going to be like some weird adult artist but it's interesting to think about what might have happened because you can just see that Fantasia and Pinocchio Fantasia especially just seems like more personal to me like the kind of movie that you make because you've got a lot of money and you can just do your vision something like Cinderella feels like oh well we do fairy tales so let's just put all our weight into doing the best darn fairy tale we can he's a really hard person to nail down as a guy um, and he'd be the first to admit it he said I do things Walt Disney doesn't do I smoke Walt Disney doesn't smoke I drink Walt Disney doesn't drink he was a master of branding he appeared on a television show every week you know in the 1950s everybody knew every kid knew who Walt Disney was and that's because Walt Disney decided that every kid would know who he was I mean Jack Warner made just as many classic movies but Jack Warner didn't go on TV to promote himself as a brand but Walt Disney realized like the genius businessman that he was that he could promote his brand better if there was a face associated with it and it might as well be his own um and so he made himself a household word and he played the character of walt disney one of the fun little details in the saving mr banks movie is the fact is in the movie he carries uh, little walt disney cards with him so that if a kid comes up he can just give him an autograph card and he doesn't actually have to sign autographs so he was savvy about how he presented himself coming up with little shortcuts like that so that he could give people what they wanted but he wasn't you know the avuncular grandfatherly kind of guy that he played on tv he wasn't and he'd be the first to admit it he was shy he was could be diffident he could be difficult you'd be hard pressed to get a lot of praise out of him he was pretty ruthless in the way he crushed a strike that happened in the early 1940s different salary disputes i mean to me he just 
feels very much like a normal businessman who's not especially kind or wonderful, but also not especially bad. Like I said earlier, you'll find exp- exposés of Walt Disney the Nazi or Walt Disney the this. Well, I don't think there's much real evidence of any of that. But to me, he just uh, seems like a guy. For better or for worse, I think he really did believe in his philosophy. You know, the whole Disney philosophy that's come down to us now of believe in yourself. A dream is a wish your heart makes. When you wish upon a star, it doesn't matter who you are. I think Walt Disney really did believe in that. I don't know whether that makes him more culpable or less culpable for the damage that that (laughs) philosophy has done. But why wouldn't he believe in that? He wished upon a star. He started out as a paper boy son of a, and ended up building Disney World simply because he thought Disney World should exist. He's actually, through hard work and determination and all that, got everything he ever wanted. So he turned around and sold that philosophy, I think, guilelessly to people. I think, for better or for worse, he really did believe more or less he bought into the Disney myth, basically. I don't know, does that make him a worse person? Or a, I want to say it doesn't exonerate him. It would be ickier if I thought that he was just a cynical person who was selling a bill of goods to the American public. I'm going to tell you that you can just believe in yourself and be whatever you want. Because that's what people want to hear. Because that's what people want to hear. No, I think he wanted to hear that too. I think he was a shallow man religiously. Uh, here's I found a quote on religion. He said, quote, deeds rather than words express my concept of the part religion should play in everyday life. I've watched constantly that in our movie work, the highest moral and spiritual standards are upheld, whether it deals with fable or with stories of living action. I think he's being sincere there. And I think that's super sad. Like he actually thinks that his movies are holding up the highest moral and spiritual standards. And that just shows you how shallow his uh, moral and spiritual standards are. Right. But he did try and live by them for, you know, if you want to say, if you want to be the most generous with him, I think, I think he was a sincerely progressive kind of a guy that wanted to do right by people with his money. There's a story that when Mary Poppins was being made, he would call the Sherman brothers who wrote the score every day after uh, work, he would have them come into his office and he would just tell them to play Feed the Birds. And they'd sit down at the piano and they'd sing him Feed the Birds. And then he'd say, that's what it's all about, boys, isn't it? And he'd walk out. So (laughs) that's Walt Disney. (laughs) All right. (laughs) He's an interesting guy. He died two years after Mary Poppins, 1966, age 65, of lung cancer, smoked about 60 cigarettes a day. Um, He was cremated, not frozen. His head's not in a vault somewhere, not in the Disney vault, Ben. I know that's disappointing to you. Man. Does anybody know what his last words are? He's got some kind of fun last words. Nope. He wrote them on a piece of paper. Don't know. Kurt Russell. The last, the last thing that Disney ever wrote on a piece of paper before he died, like when he was in his death throes, was he wrote the name Kurt Russell. So that Kurt Russell would be in that one, what's that movie, a Disney movie? I want to say Kurt Russell, he's a boy, he was a boy star. He was under contract for yeah. Disney at the time. Okay. I forget what he was in. I've seen one of them, but, but Dis- I can't think of the title. Nobody to this day knows what Disney was thinking or what <laughs> Kurt, <laughs> they've, they've asked Kurt Russell, like, why do you think Walt Disney wrote your name? <laughs> like the last thing he ever did. <laughs> Kurt Russell doesn't have any idea. (laughs) Wow, that's weird. Yeah. I want to say Kurt Russell was in like one of those dumb Disney movies. Like, if you start to put in Kurt Russell and Walt Disney, then you want to Google autofills Kurt Russell, Walt Disney's son. Oh, is that so? Probably like just a conspiracy theory that people have because of what I just said. Probably. 
Uh, yeah, Caressel, the computer wore tennis shoes. Yes. That's what I've seen. I knew he was in one it. of those terrible, yeah. I hate those, that brand of Disney movie, Blackbeard's Ghost, Flubber, all that stuff. I hate all those <laughs> things. Herbie, I didn't uh, even really care for the, that darn cat. I didn't even care. I always liked Herbie and the absent-minded professor. Nah, anything with Fred McMurray that's not directed by Willy Wilder, I'm not a fan of. But. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's really all the context that I came prepared with today. I think that's the most important thing you really want to know if you want to know anything about this movie, you want to know who Walt Disney was and who P.L. Travers was, I guess. But that's it. So let's talk about this Mary Poppins. Ben, why All don't right. you like Mary Poppins? Oh, I do like it, kind of. I just, I don't, I don't know. I like Mr. Banks. I like watching Julie Andrews be practically perfect in every way as Mary Poppins. You like her. She makes Mary Poppins feel human and like a strange otherworldly being, but in a good way. I like... I like all the stuff to do with the Banks household and all the drama between the servants and the dad. I like the dad's progression from not noticing anything in his world to realizing that he's sort of full of himself and it's okay just to laugh at himself and he needs to love his kids. I think that's great. I think I'm not a a natural born musical lover. And so sometimes the silliness of musical numbers, I'm just like, I wish something were happening in the plot. And in this movie, there's long, long stretches where nothing that has to do with the plot or the Banks household really is happening. The long animated sequence in Bert's painting, I found myself kind of impatient this time, but I think that I was impatient as a little kid too. And I think that that, that as a little kid, I just wanted, I wanted adventure. I wanted a plot. You've got to grind, grind, grind at that That's grindstone. right. <laughs> That's me, man. Yeah, I don't have time for these, these animated animated paintings. Piggledy, piggledy. What, what is this race? What is this exfoliadocious <laughs> stuff? Super Calif... Super... What? And, um, and so as, as a kid, I think I got kind of bored with that, with the arbitrary nature of some of their adventures. The arbitrary nature. Yeah, yeah. Just, just like we're in this painting, stuff is happening. It's just kind of happening. And sometimes I probably enjoy that, but I probably saw it enough as a kid to get sort of tired of it. And I probably was more a fan of more, more a fan of stories where the kids, let's say, are constantly in some kind of peril or difficult situation. One thing I did think about this time was that the kids are, well, for one thing, they just don't seem that bad. Mm-hmm. You know, as little kids, I got the impression in the book I was reading, Michael is pretty awful mm-hmm. sometimes. The kind but, of kid that might put pepper in your tea. Yeah. Or, uh... <laughs> oh, did he do that in the movie? He I drove Katie Nana to despair, well, to distraction at least. Yeah, yeah, but you just don't, it's just hard to pin it down in the movie. He's, they sing him in their advertisement for a nanny that they won't put toads in That's true. Or pepper in her tea. That's true. They just want someone nicer and then they'll be nice in return. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, you, you get that, but they're just not so bad in the movie. Maybe they're so intimidated by Mary Poppins or they just love her so much, the whole movie, that they kind of give up that behavior. That's the impression you get. Or that they were just flailing for discipline and love. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they got it, they didn't need to be crazy and wacko anymore. Maybe that's the case. As a, <laughs> you're, you're willing to go out on that limb? <laughs> yeah. That certain that certainly makes sense. You're willing to ride that carousel horse, is, ben. To ride that carousel horse, even if it goes off the carousel, Nathan, and starts <laughs> galloping through the countryside. <laughs> on, the, on a fox hunt on a, and fox into hunt a race. Mary Poppins discussion. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to what you're saying, Ben. Yeah. Because I'm just like... I love the episodic nature of it. I don't care that the plot's not going anywhere. I love 
every individual episode. It feels like you've just had a day of excitement with Mary Poppins and that's what you want, man. Eh, it's not what I want. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not what nine-year-old me wanted either, I don't think. But I like it. I don't, I don't think I love it. What else do you want? What do you want me to say? Not any of that. Not any of that? I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. Uh, you're disappointed. Mm-hmm. Jake, your thoughts? Um, maybe we should kick Ben off the show. <laughs> We should rip his uh, whatever his coat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Punch a hole in his hat. Punch a hole in his hat. Yeah, <laughs> that'll learn Remove me. Remove his uh, lapel. Uh, <laughs> that'll uh, learn me to enjoy free-spirited imagination. <laughs> Jake says the episodic nature of Mary Poppins, the lack of forward propulsion on this plot. Does that, does that ever enter your head to be bothered by? No. <laughs> I want more episodes of singing and fun and awesomeness. What I remember as a kid is that each episode felt so long and so epic that it just felt like its own kind of Thing. movie and I got involved in the drama of Carousel Race or them getting off of the ceiling with and so by the time the actual plot kicked in it was almost just like a cherry on the Sunday kind of oh yeah this is actually but I'm, I mean I think maybe when I was young enough when the plot actually kicked in it was like oh that's the that's the adult stuff yeah, this is the- <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing they had to put in for mom and dad. Right. Oh, I will say, I wasn't in a very good mood when I watched it. I was just kind of tired and depressed and a little angry. And so probably I should watch it again sometime when I'm in a better mood. You're saying a spoonful of sugar didn't help the medicine go down? No, I did think, I did think actually... You know, it feels like this movie is targeting me right now. <laughs> I, was I kind it. of resent it's like, that. It's like, I don't have time for this movie. Stop playing games with me, movie. <laughs> and the movie is like, exactly. <laughs> You're supposed to be watching this right now. I'll this see is... your grumpiness and raise you. <laughs> I was sugar. like, uh, that was kind of how it felt. And you dug your heels in. I dug resisted. my heels in and I was like, eh, this is just all right. <laughs> oh. Do you, Jake, when you're uh, watching the movie, do you watch it through the eyes of a kid? I guess you have kids that you watch can actually watch it through the eyes of. I think I watch it more as an adult, really. Yeah, I watch it. I, I, I process it entirely as, as a dad. That's how I watch that movie. I watch it as a dad. I watch myself and Mr. Banks. <laughs> and <laughs> I watch Jane and Michael as my kids. I they like just, it. They just want your, your affection and uh, what does life do? Slips like sand through a sieve. There are always places where I thought that that spoonful of sugar was too much to give. Mm-hmm. Little things like that where I could be like, you know what? Yeah, you kind of are a jerk sometimes. Maybe you should chill out. So I'm sure there's probably people watching that are like, the whole movie's Disney schmaltz. It's just undermining the authority of dads everywhere, just like Disney's been doing now since that movie came out. They've have the and that all and that all TV has been, you know, every. TV and movie dad is an incompetent, bumbling idiot who doesn't understand his wife and children. And right. Yeah, I don't. I, I think that is true. Lots and lots of movies have incompetent, bumbling dads who uh, don't get it. I think Mr. Banks is painted as a sympathetic guy who really does love his family and is caught up in the grind, grind, grind at the grindstone. And uh, that happens and it's real. And he doesn't lose any of his dignity. Or his authority, what happens is it's all restored at the end. Mm-hmm. And so people are, you know, the whole sister suffragette stuff, you mm-hmm. know, people get all 
hmm. um, upset about that. But but what's amazing is as you watch it, Winifred, she just wants Mr. Banks to take charge mm-hmm. at home. <laughs> and she's like, oh, Mr. Banks will be home. We better, you know, she's going to march around the house and <laughs> sing her song. And then it's, oh, Mr. Banks is going to be home. You know how he hates this stuff. Let's hide it, you know. <laughs> and then he comes in and she's just like ready to serve him and mm-hmm. But the children, dear, you know, when he finally decides he's going to take charge and pick the nanny, she's like, oh, George, would you? Like, please take this off my plate. Would you please? Like, you know, it's sort of just playing around this, like, she really is and wants to be just his happy wife and the happy mother of their children. The kids just want him to pay attention to them just a little bit. And as soon as... He comes to his senses, you know, the suffragette thing gets turned into a kite tail and we don't have any need for that anymore. And yeah, which is, mm-hmm. I'm, gonna th- I'm thinking that might be symbolic. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah huh. it's almost like it was symbolic. <laughs> like she didn't need her suffragette stuff anymore because daddy was home. Right. We don't have to flail anymore. We don't need Mary Poppins anymore. Right. And Mary Poppins didn't come in to show and save the day and show how stupid Mr. Banks was and how what this really needs is a woman. No, what she did was she came in and she tweaked some things, created just enough chaos for Mr. Banks to realize he needed to wake up and come home. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that happened, she didn't have anything else to do there. The wind changes and she's going to see herself out. She's gone. It doesn't matter what mm -hmm. affection she may may not feel for the kids. It's she has to go. Yeah, well, and then they forget about her. She's lost. As soon as daddy's home, who's Mary Poppins? Dad's going to take us to fly a kite. Like, <laughs> And that's the way it should be. She knows that. And mm-hmm. so she leaves. Yeah. It's pretty great. No, mm-hmm. it's wonderful. I don't understand. I, I get that. I, okay, I'll admit that the legacy of Mary Poppins is that lots of movies have come after it, probably influenced by Mary Poppins, that have portrayed dad as a bumbling idiot who needs to actually abandon his ambition. Like, if they made Mary Poppins today, and it'll be interesting to see what they do with the sequel that's coming out this year, by the way. But if they did it today, I have no doubt that the bank would be evil, completely evil, and that it would probably end with, like, Mary Poppins and the kids, like, getting Home Alone-style revenge on, like, all the bankers causing chaos, realizing that dad has to be done with capitalism, dad has to be done with exerting any kind of authority. I think there's a real difference in this movie and it's a subtle one perhaps but i think this movie actually isn't saying that dad has to be done with ambition or authority it's saying he just has to exercise it in hmm. the right yeah. way pay some attention to the what's going on in i mean the constable shows up at the very beginning right with mm-hmm. the kids and <laughs> he's got authority and gravity mm-hmm. and he's saying so they were just chasing a kite right <laughs> <laughs> kite got away from him <laughs> i wouldn't be too hard on him Thank you, Constable. <laughs> He's like, all right. <laughs> Cook will get you something. <laughs> Cook will get you something. I'll see myself out. <laughs> I don't know why, but that corny joke always really makes me laugh at the end. Go fly a kite, sir. No, not you personally, sir. <laughs> 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 What about this Mary Poppins lady? She People like to paint her as a feminist, but I think exactly what Jake says is right. She shows up, she sets things in order, and helps Dad take up the authority that he should have been wielding in a kind way the whole time. And You, you know, in uh, Tim Bailey's book, Daddy Tried, mm-hmm. he has a Mary Poppins story. Yeah, he does. He's talking about discipline and disciplining 
one of his sons and how his son had bad marks mm-hmm. at school yeah and he was just going to amp up the discipline and then there was a woman at church an elder's wife who said something like i think that boy just needs to spend more time with his dad mm-hmm. and just looked at him and so then he made it a point to start actually talking to his son a little bit more and getting to know him a little bit more and being showing him more affection. And he points to the marks at school changing, not and, just because of the discipline, but... But because of needing to show the affection too, alongside of the discipline and the affection providing the context for the reception of the discipline mm-hmm. and the sternness. And then he points to this elder's wife as the person who helped him realize that. That's just so that's... That's the story of, that is what Mary Poppins is. Mm -hmm. Mary Poppins shows up and says, there's actually nothing wrong with being a little stern and having discipline and order. She she has discipline and order wherever she goes and she requires it of the children, just like Mr. Banks wants it in his house. But a little spoonful of sugar goes a long, long way. As Ben was pointing out earlier, Mr. Banks actually doesn't have discipline and order in his house. That's right. the farthest thing from it. He's mm-hmm. got a wife he has, that's flailing. He, he has the illusion of it. In, servants yeah, in that are mind. arguing. Right. He's just, right. Mary Poppins is like, hey, how about you have some actual discipline and order? The yeah. kind that comes through Natural attention. authority. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't pay attention to anyone. Not his. Not his. The admiral, right? The admiral who fires. Yeah, the he's, wa- he's the walking. Hour. It's very well established that how how blind he is. To everything. Yeah, he's walking. <laughs> the admiral's gonna. It's a bad bit of weather coming in. Splendid, splendid. You know, he Thanks. walks in. Thanks. <laughs> he's like. It's grand to be an Englishman in 1910. <laughs> King Edward's on the throne. It's the age of men. I'm the sovereign of my castle, or the lord of my castle, the sovereign, the liege. I treat my children, servants, wife, respect. No, bless a bleed. Right? It's just like, George, the children are missing. Splendid, splendid. <laughs> and I will pat them on the head and send them off to bed. How lovely is... Or no. Lordly. Lordly is the life I lead. Yeah, and it is it is great that <laughs> the movie doesn't the children? <laughs> scorn him. What that? It is great that the movie doesn't scorn because if that were made today, the movie would it would just be heaping it would just be mocking him. No, he'd either he, be just the villain of the piece or he'd be yeah, just a buffoon that needed to be right. redeemed by David his Tomlinson kids. brings a a real dignity and grace and humility yeah. to that role. We watched is, uh, before we started recording. Yeah. Jake pulled up on YouTube the scene where Bert sings the little song to him at the grate. You know, you've got to grind, grind, grind. Um, yeah, he's just sort of really. I mean, not. I mean, it's like it's Disney rubbing it. In. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Disney wasn't subtle about this. Stuff. No pretty, subtlety in that. It's scene pretty brutal, actually. Mm-hmm. Any subtlety in that scene is Tomlinson. Mm-hmm. Yes, but but with the things that you see happen in his face, he's just such a good actor, and he's able to play the more buffoonish parts of George Banks' personality without ever letting you forget that this is a real man. Yeah. Um, and it's really great. It might be the best performance in the movie. It's certainly the least cartoonish performance in hmm. a very yeah, broad the, movie. He's got to be able to sell being sort of clueless and not really clueless, but really caught up. Mm-hmm. Caught up in the Tuppence invested prudently, freely in the Dawes, to be specific, the right. Dawes, Tums, Mousley, Mousley Grimes, 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 Fidelity, Fiduciary Bank, and Railway Waste Africa. <laughs> <laughs> that might be my Plantations favorite. Plantations of 
tea. <laughs> <laughs> Self-amortizing canals. <laughs> was that, wasn't that one of the yeah, yeah. That was the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's bought into the whole thing, and he's caught up in it, and he's in the machinations of getting promoted and all that stuff, being mm. in that inner circle of the bank. And he sells all of that really well, and also... Yeah, but he's a good man. Yeah, he sells the sweetness of the character. You know, the fact that this is actually a guy that's not going to need a huge nudge. He just needs a couple reminders and a little chaos. Well, and his kids did start to run on the bank and get him fired for <laughs> okay, his job. And run away <laughs> to, 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 to the wharf where <laughs> they get chased by a strange... Witch. Yeah, a witch. <laughs> Almost eaten by a giant dog. And <laughs> okay, it was a bit of a nudge. <laughs> it's a bit of a nudge. But he's there. But he. Uh, my point, I guess, is that he's... He's receptive. He's ready for it. He has that sweetness inside of him that's just waiting to be unlocked by Walt Disney and Mary Poppins. And it's nice. He gives enough resistance before. Mm-hmm. Suddenly everybody's happy and cheerful and he can't stand that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. It is nice that the movie comes with a built-in defense mechanism. Anybody that watches it that's going to be irritated by Mary Poppins, it's sweetness and light and spoonful of sugar. It's like the movie already knows that and has written it into the DNA of the movie that it's going to teach you why you shouldn't be irritated by (laughs) the spoonful of sugar that this movie is trying to cram down (laughs) your throat. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, the scene where he walks to the bank... I remember that scene, like when he's walking at night all alone. I and oh, the yeah. feed the birds, the swelling on the soundtrack. It makes me cry to this day. But I remember it being transporting, even as a kid. Like it just filled me with dream sadness. feeling of what did you say? I said sadness. Oh yeah, sa- I, I don't know what exactly what the word like melancholy, but it's kind of like. I mean, it's a little bit how, like, at Christmas, you get nostalgic for horses and sleighs, even though you've never been on a one-horse carriage, one-horse open sleigh. That movie makes me nostalgic for this vision of England, that this misty kind of fairy tale world that Walt Disney built on some California backdrops with some big paintings and stuff like that. It's just really beautiful. The whole... Even- well, the, the score really works on you there too it's yeah. got some yeah give you even that much more a sense of nostalgia or longing longing yeah. yeah it's a little bit like that c.s lewis feeling that he that intangible sort of feeling of otherness that things give you i don't yeah. know that that scene really sure. fills me with that and it has to do i mean there's no way that they could have gone to real london and filmed the exact same scene and got anywhere close uh, to the power of just having simple painted well not simple very effectively by the best artists in the world painted backdrops and models and whatever they did there it, it tells the story of a man walking to his doom <laughs> <laughs> really well. I guess we've addressed the fact that Mary Poppins is not a feminist, but I have heard people in our very church, Jake, say that Mary Poppins is a feminist. She goes in there, she stirs things up. I mean, I guess we have already made the defense of that, right? I always like to think what Mary Poppins, and I'm sure I'm, I'm not the first person to comment on this, maybe the books get into it, but what is Mary Poppins' deal? Like, who hurt Mary Poppins, Ben? Like, what? Why does she just go around solving family crises and teaching dads to take some responsibility for their families and stuff like what's what's her motivation maybe we'll find out in mary poppins returns i sure hope not hopefully not yeah (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't that sounds like a terrible story i think we just need her to be magical oh yeah fairy yeah glenda the good witch you know 
I think that is how you have to think. And that's why feminism doesn't even enter into it because she's not even really exactly a woman. She's more like a witch. She's just a... Yeah, the only place where that that feeling gets spoiled is the Jolly Holiday. Yeah, and P.L. Travers famously hated that Disney nudged Bert and Mary Mary towards something. Some a kind bit of a romance, yeah. But I thought it was pretty tasteful. I like, I sort of, I, I love the idea that Bert's just this dude that knows everybody and has seen this story play out a hundred times and is just always there to kind of help Mary Poppins out every time and he knows what's going on but plays it cool and lets the story unfold the way it's supposed to. He's a He's a good magical character in that way. We don't really need Bert and Mary Poppins to have a romance, but it's nice to, that they have history together. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, and and it's nice that we don't know what that history is, except for that we get the idea that the same thing probably happens every year. Mary Poppins shows up and saves another family, and or every couple of years, yeah, whatever. You got to really let that scene where. Bert feels the wind change and he gets disrupted and goes to this like place where he's all by himself. It's gotta, it's gotta be special enough. They can't just be like a, Oh, here she is again this year. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But it does have that almost like a Peter Pan, Jan Barry kind of like, it's got some of that stuff going on. And it's kind of a fairy story trope. Sometimes, well, yeah, I think this is true that certain things, certain creatures or magical beings don't come unless they're invited. Right. And you open the door to them. And so in the movie, Mary Poppins doesn't seem that she comes just because there's a need. She right. comes because the children say, we want you to come. She comes with that invitation. Yeah. There She's she like is. a vampire. Yeah, that's right. They don't cross your threshold unless you invite them. Oh, cool. No, I'm ruining your point, but it's actually Thanks. a good point. That is a good point. She's a, no, she's a good, she's a good, yeah, she just feels like a magical, magical creature. I don't know, maybe I'll have to read the books to f- see what else we find out about this Mary Poppins hmm. person, but sort of don't want to because I like the Disney Mary Poppins a lot and I don't need her to be a pompous yeah. old bag. Ben does. I, I like I like the movie Mary Poppins. I like her, I like Julie Andrews' version. You prefer your medicine to be sugarless, though. Sugarless, that's right. Just like my coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which most of my life I've had with sugar, but not recently. Just a spoonful of medicine makes the sugar go down. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense. I still, I still don't much like the animated sequence. I like, I like maybe most of the movie, but that's generous of you, Ben. Oh, thanks, Nathan. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that I could be generous. Um, oh man. I don't know. The animated sequence, probably as an adult, I will say the animated sequence is the one that's kind of the longest. It's still, for me, I love to laugh. Yeah, but I I love to laugh, Jake. I also love to laugh, but... Yeah, that one one too. If I had to, if I gunned to my head, I wouldn't cut either one, but I would cut the animated sequence probably before I cut Love to Laugh. laugh. I've just always liked Edwin. Yeah, he's awesome. He has a wonderful voice and everything. He tells all those great jokes. I like the penguin scene. I like the penguin dance. I like the I like the jolly holiday with Mary. Yeah, that's a great song. Yeah, the more I think, I about think, it, yeah, I, I'm saying if there was something that went on too long, it might be that the fox hunt. But mm-hmm. there's not actually something that goes on too long, and the movie is practically perfect in every way. If there was, uh-huh. it might be that. If the, if there's anything that's ever a drug on my patience, it might be that. But but as a kid, the idea of jumping into a chalk painting on the street, what a cool thing. I, I, think, mean, who, I, I think the idea is great, yeah. Who doesn't walk by a chalk painting and think about Mary Poppins? Who doesn't think walk by regular paintings and think of, I mean, kids today probably think about Mario 64 when they think about jumping into paintings. But, wow, you I just said kids, kids today. 15 and years ago, probably years thought ago. about that. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> kids today with the <laughs> Nintendo 
Fours. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the Mario. That was, that was awesome. There's Sonic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I suck. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, yeah, no. I, yeah. I think that the way the scene is done, it doesn't add a whole lot to your enjoyment of the characters or the deve- or the development of the themes. Well, I don't care about that. It's got two killer songs: Jolly Holiday and, of course, Super Califragilistic Even though the sound of it may be something quite atrocious, if you say it loud, loud enough, you'll always you'll always sound, sound atrocious. Mm. Like I said it to his wife, and then. She married him. Yeah. Even though she was a big, fat, uh, terrible lady. It could change your life. Yeah. For instance. Yeah. One day I said it to me girl, and now me girl's me wife. And a wonderful... And what a lovely yeah, thing I, she I is, think, too. I'm not, the big, I'm not a big fan of either of those songs. <laughs> What's the best song in the movie, Ben? Probably Feed the Birds. I like Chim Chimney and like, all its repetitions. Yeah. No, it's fun to have it running through and yeah. take different... And then when they get up on the rooftop before Step in Time and he sings, Up where the smoke is all billowed Oh, and yeah. That was, gr- that was awesome. In the chimney sweeps world, though I spends me days in the ashes. Ah, I don't remember what the part is. When he that, says, Goo, what, coo, what a sight. Coo, what a sight. The most authentic coo you've ever heard <laughs> yeah, in your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. Step in Time, that's another one I'm like, eh, this is just... I mean, the whole song, it's like the point Votes for women! Is to Step be in time. Arbitrary. Step in time, step in time, don't need a reason, don't need a rhyme. Why does it, Why are the chimney sweeps in particular stepping in time? It doesn't matter. They don't need a reason. They don't need a rhyme. Shut <laughs> up, Ben. It was a great dance scene. It was a great dance scene. When I worked like, for an answering yeah. service, we used to answer for a company named, uh, I shouldn't say what the actual name is, but let's say it was Steven's Time. And so anytime we got a call for Steven's Time in my head, it would just go, Steven's Time, Steven's Time. Like every time that call, the thought would never be in my, not be in my head. So thank you, Mary Poppins, for that. Um, but I love that sequence. It's, I mean, it's just a fun sequence to watch actual dancers dance and Dick Van Dyke be awesome. And yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movie. And I don't even really care for the song all that much. But it's just the exuberance and the performance is like you're actually watching somebody do something like. Yeah, you know, it was it's, it's cool dance sequence. I mean, Matt Damon could never do that. <laughs> Not without 4,000 cameras <laughs> editing and shaking and sound effects making it sound like he could do something like that, like in those stupid Bourne movies. But to me, something like that's more exciting. I mean, this is such an old person thing to say, but a, a Bourne, Jason Bourne action scene, it's like some clever editing is making it seem like Matt Damon can fight somebody. Whereas a scene like that's like Dick Van Dyke actually knows how to dance. And so do all these guys. And they're stepping in time. It's awesome. Not, I don't have anything against their dancing or their dancing ability. Okay. I also like the Jason Bourne fight sequences, but uh, that's another that's another podcast, listener. <laughs> we do the Jason Bourne quadrilogy or whatever it is. I hate the Jason Bourne fight sequence. I like the Bourne movies, okay, but I think the fact that they popularize that terrible style of action where there is no actual action. Ugh. Oh. Ugh. I think it's well done enough, but movies that try to copy it do a bad job. Like the Dark Knight movies where you can't tell what's going on. Yeah, no, Nolan it. Nolan could never pull that off. But the two directors of those three movies could, I think. I think did a yep. good job. I agree, as far as that kind of thing goes. Yeah. This is all very important to discuss. I assume for... this is going to be cut. <laughs> did you think that the kids were too schmaltzy, Jake? No. I actually think it's interesting how not pretty they are. Like, mm-hmm. you kind of mm-hmm. cast ugly kids <laughs> that's okay I mean, they're, not ugly. they're not ugly but they're just like normal yeah kids they're they're not adorable little they're cute in their way yeah sure but i think it just 
shows you how smart Walt Disney actually was. He knew exactly how far he could push the schmaltz. You cast adorable little Shirley Temple Moppets. Suddenly those kids are obnoxious. You, no, they need to be every kid's. They, yeah, exactly. Uh, and they yeah. need to be able to pull off their one song. Yeah, which they do. Jake, what's your favorite song in Mary Poppins? I think I'm going to side with Ben and say Chim Chimney or Feed the Birds. Maybe I don't. It's, it's almost not a fair question. It's not mm. like... To me, it's like asking what your favorite Beatles song is or yeah, asking what your favorite Leonardo da Vinci painting is or asking what your favorite yeah, the, jewel at the Buckingham Palace is. I mean, they all like, do their job really well and they're all great in their place and they they all kind of, or most all of them, stay with you. And I think I could hum either, ever, all of them except for that go to sleep song. Go to... No, I can't do it. I don't know. Stay away. Yes. Yeah, I don't. It took me a minute because I kept wanting to sing Stay Awake to Feed the Birds. <laughs> Stay away. <laughs> <laughs> feed the birds. <laughs> I will say as a kid, I did resent that song for being long and slow and boring. I was ready to... And the bird lady being mm. kind of gross. Bird lady being kind of gross. Yeah, it took me as me being an adult to realize Appreciate how it. That, powerful yeah. that was actually but, yeah same but i wasn't like ben bored during the animated sequence the, the narrative engine appears to have sputtered oh here. please <laughs> <laughs> i know there's christians that are genuinely disturbed by this movie in a weird way like they think it's disney selling schmaltz blurring the lines of authority between a father and his children between a husband and a wife between eh, people that are actually disturbed by that for real i just I'm not. I can see how it led to a lot of dumb things in the people in the kinds of movies. Like if, if you take it in and of itself and right. on its own terms, it's just not any of those things. It's mm-hmm. a good movie. It's a movie about a dad who realizes that he needs to show a little tenderness and affection and give a little attention to everything around him besides just himself and his vision of his own dignity and it's really when somebody talks to you listen to what they say Mm -hmm. yeah pay attention to them and you know yeah and mary poppins doesn't destroy authority in the home she actually forces the children to obey her (laughs) (laughs) and mary poppins is not anti-authority but no she's 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 she is sub sub well she does manipulate mr banks but in the way that like a fairy character would or some she's not operating by human yeah. laws here she's no. it's it's like it's like the angel showing george bailey his light you know it's one of those kind of, it's it's divine um intervention li- i mean you could say she's a little bit like a gen or something like mm. you know a, more like of a trickstery sure uh like a trickster goddess kind of character she's gonna show up yeah. and she's gonna yeah like he be careful what you ask the genie for, mm. you know. But but she has she has the good of the home and and Mr. Banks and Mrs. Banks and the children at heart. Mm. Yes, if any, if you've ever had your if your dad has ever behaved like a buffoon, which I bet he has, dear listener, because uh, your dad is only human. He's probably a sinner. I'm gonna just guess. And or if you as a dad ever have, you can certainly laugh at and with Mr. Banks when he shows up and feels a surge of great satisfaction while his whole household is crumbling i mean we all laugh at that and walt disney meant for us too but it seems to me if you want to psychoanalyze if you really want to just do what i said we shouldn't do and psychoanalyze it and say walt was thinking about his stern old 
Batman, Elias, Disney. I think it's a very affectionate one. Yeah. You know, like this is, I loved, you know, my dad was stern. He could be a little foolish, but he was actually sweet, a sweetheart. <laughs> you know, that's that's basically the message of the movie, which is a nice message. Maybe a little corny. Probably doesn't work out that way in everybody's household, but that's what Disney movies are for. What do you want from Disney movies? I know what Ben wants, a linear plot. I like Silly Cartoons, listener, just so you know. Just not that one. I really think you need to be visited by a trickster nanny. <laughs> or three ghosts. <laughs> three ghosts. <laughs> I thought you were going to say. <laughs> That's right. Or an angel. <laughs> if these shadows remain unchanged. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> I see a man all alone watching Japanese samurai films. <laughs> I see Nathan Alverson limping sadly to his car. I don't know, I don't know why I would see that. <laughs> I'm looking sadly into my car. You're limping sadly to your car. In the snow. Well, if you died all alone watching Samli, uh, uh, samurai films, I probably would limp to my car, sadly, into the snow. If it you probably would. Winter and I had a limp. Yeah. I'd be sad, though. I hope not to do that. No, yeah. That's I not my plan. I really don't think you should die alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Anything else you guys want to say about this movie? What's your favorite part of the movie, Jake? Oh, well, I should ask you about your kids. What do they do? They like Mary Poppins? Yeah. Do they think? Do they engage with the sadness? Do they cry for Mr. Banks, or is that, that well, part just kind of boring and lame? Yeah, well, the last so so this go around, I've forgotten how long it was, and so I'd started at like six thirty or something like that on a school night, mm-hmm. and it's two and a half hours long, mm-hmm. and may have even gotten been closer to seven when I started it, and thought, oh, you know, hour and a half if it goes to eight thirty, but I just had spaced on how long it was. Right. So I stopped it when they're up on the rooftops i didn't get step in time or chim chimney or anything beyond that uh, i can't really report on how they responded to the sadness of mr banks or all that stuff i would say my favorite scene is everything from a man has dreams of walking with giants mm. up to the walk to the bank through yeah. the walk to the bank that's the movie that's what makes the movie Special. So you unabashedly watch it as the George Banks, the, you're processing your own fatherhood and all this yeah, kind of stuff. And, absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a simple, straightforward, clownish kind of movie. So it's just a little fable. It's not meant to solve yeah. the world's and, problems. And you need to take take it like a fairy tale. And if you're going to take a fairy tale, fairy tales have morals. And just humbly accept that, you know, it's a good moral. But yeah, I mean, take it for what it is and and let yourself be moved and think about the ways you need to be a better dad. I don't know. Yeah. And I like it for that reason. I like it that, you know, I can sit down and I can enjoy it with my kids and it can be fun. By the time it's over, I think, yeah, I could be a more tender dad. I've just been reading through the epistles. The one big thing it has for dads is fathers. Don't exasperate exasperate your your children. children. So Mary Poppins doesn't get much more complicated than that. But I like George Banks. I like I like how that all I like I like how completely cheesy that whole scene is with uh, Bert and his facial expressions. <laughs> 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 my tongue is in my cheek. Do you see it? Van <laughs> <laughs> Dyke's the best. <laughs> He's awesome. He makes that movie great. Yeah, really it's does. it's the why you want to want to love him is because he really does seem like a guy who could carry some natural gravity and dignity and he completely is self-abasing mm. 
everything he does is humiliating. He just throws himself into slapstick. I think so, yeah. Terrible accent. He's just 110%. He's all in unreserved. There's no sense that he's giving you anything but his very best, like... He's not holding back. He's not like playing it cool. He's not trying to wink and nod and say that he's above this stupid character that he has to play. I mean, I know that this kind of comedian is goes way back before him, but I I tend to see even you know some of the bigger comedians downstream as being of the Dick Van Dyke school. Like I'm hesitant to say because I'm not exactly a big fan of the comedians that I I think remind me of him. But Jim Carrey or... Sure, yeah. Definitely. Um, Even Jack Black. Yeah, I don't know Jack Black that well, but yeah. I, I, I would say he's... It's it's the sincerity. It's the like, no, I'm not above this. I'm in this. I yeah. think that's generally there with him. I think more Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey is, was my first thought. Well, Jim Carrey is a perfect example because Jim Carrey does something very similar or did in his you know movies that were coming out in the 90s or whenever we you know whenever he was doing all his comedies he really throws himself into those kinds of roles he jim carrey can be ironic but Mm -hmm. the way he throws himself into those roles isn't necessarily ironic he's willing to just play goofball characters but i think it really makes me respect dick van dyke that much more because with jim carrey i never liked him and one of the reasons i never liked him even as a kid when i kind of thought he was funny is there's just an inherent kind of mean-spiritedness that comes Mm -hmm. through yeah, and you don't feel that with Dick Van Dyke. No. What you do yeah. feel with Jim Carrey is that he is playing t- to the kids. Mm-hmm. If he is, though, he's playing to maybe what's nasty in the kid. Yeah. Know. Yeah, I think yeah. so, for sure. It's like I think, every I think kid that's can be bratty and grumpy, and I'm just going to personify that for and you. And amp so it up to yeah. you know, 11. Yeah. And I don't like that. I mean, with Dick Van Dyke, it's like, yeah, I don't know what it is. I think it's just an inherent kind of decent quality that he has that he actually somehow can play that goofy Burt character and not give up all of his gravity and authority. I don't know how he does it. It's, it's He's just, completely lovable it's just who and he is. sweet and... Yeah, he's the guy that you want to. F- if anybody in the movie is going to find you when you're lost on the, lost that's scared. the guy that you yeah. want to find you. Absolutely, a lovable. Uh, uh, a, a lady needn't fear when, when bird is near. When yes. bird is near, and the same with the kids. He's mm-hmm. safe. He's safe. He's just a good. He's just a good guy. He really makes that that movie work. There's a term that people like to toss around: snooty people. So film noir is film black. It's shadowy films about the seedy side of human nature. About murders and things that have gone wrong and it's generally shot in a very shadow way the people like to say film blanc which would be film white for these kinds of movies for it's a wonderful life for christmas carol type movies for mary poppins movies about supernatural intervention for human good that's the genre but i I am a sucker for that story. For It's a Wonderful Life, Christmas Carol, Mary Poppins. They're all kind of the same to me. I love to see a character redeemed, and I love to see whatever you want to call it. You know, I love to see this outside supernatural element come in. And I think maybe there's a biblical reason that that sort of thing might (laughs) resonate. I don't know. but (laughs) Well, it's not stretch here. (laughs) I don't know if that's a stretch or not. But um, I really like stories like that. It just, there's nothing that makes me happier than watching any version of The Christmas Carol and having Scrooge suddenly go nuts and be happy Hmm. and dancing around and meeting all the people that he was mean to and suddenly he's nice to them and they always make sure to, he gets a moment with each one of them. George Bailey running home. You all building and loan. George Banks with his kite. I'm sure Mary Poppins Richard Turns will be a triumphant entry mm-hmm. in the that genre. Mm-hmm. Do you, do we know anything about that 
about Mary Poppins Returns? I looked just a little bit incidentally at the casting. Maybe I was looking at casting for Mary Poppins. I clicked on Dick Van Dyke and saw that he was in Mary Poppins Returns. So we know that Dick Van Dyke has a cameo. I think he has a dance, actually, which is cool because he's like 85, 95, whatever he is. I'm pretty sure it's set in the 1930s, which is when the original Travers books are set. I'm pretty sure it's about Michael Jane and Michael. Jane and Michael, specifically Michael being a father and having kids and Mary Poppins rolling back into town, presumably to... Straighten Michael out. Straighten, yeah, I guess. So we'll see. I think if anything's going to prove our argument that Mary Poppins is actually an awesome and not subversive, terrible feminist anti-father movie, it's probably going to be this new one trying to do the same shtick and probably being a subversive feminist anti-father movie. Be nice if it wasn't, but I'd be a little surprised, wouldn't you? Yeah, I'd be surprised. Yep. I love love it. It's got songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who everybody really likes for Hamilton, which I've not seen because I'm not a, I don't have an extra couple thousand dollars to go see Hamilton. But uh, apparently people are quite fond of it, what I understand. Got Emily Blunt playing Mary Poppins. I don't know if that's good casting or not. She the one from Live, Die, Repeat or whatever, the Michael. Yeah. uh, mm -hmm. Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow and... uh, Sicario. Sicario. She's a good actress. She's a good actress. Ben Wishaw's playing Michael. That's good. I don't even know who that is. Colin Firth, Angela Lansbury, Meryl Streep. Ben Wishaw. Are supporting characters. So they'll probably all appear in as colorful characters in little episodes. Mm-hmm. Disney certainly knows how to exploit their legacy. Ben, would you recommend that people watch Mary Poppins if they haven't seen it before in their lives? If they've rock dwellers, cave dwellers, time travelers from like Jules Verne era who just Mm. showed up today and haven't seen Mary Poppins. Maybe time travelers from the future, aliens from other... I'm trying to think of people who haven't seen Mary Poppins. Right. Alaska, like uh, Inuits, uh, Mm -hmm. perhaps. Would you recommend that such people watch Mary Poppins? I would, Nathan. I think they would like it. All right. (laughs) Jake, same question. Yes. All right. Nathan, same question. Yes, absolutely. Mary Poppins is a fantastic film. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll uh, have other various emotional reactions, all of them positive. Sound of Sanity Today, the Sanity at the Movies, I should say, was engineered by Benjamin Zolzer. It was produced by Nathan Emerson. It was executive produced by Nathan Emerson and Jacob Menzel, like all four Wine Warhorn products. Oh, Jake, is there anything we need to advertise? Shepherd's Conference is still coming up. Still coming up. Real soon, Still not too late. It's coming up soon. Uh, February 21 to 23, not too late to sign up. Up. The subject is the good fight conflict in Christian ministry. We have Pastor Toby Sumter, Pastor Max Carell, and Pastor Tim Bailey all speaking. The good fight, step in time. The good fight, step in time. Never need a conference. <laughs> yes, I need a conference. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> it really doesn't work. <laughs> it really doesn't work in the song form. Okay. Uh, like I was saying before, folks, Sound of Sanity, produced by Benjamin Solzer. No, no, false, incorrect. Ha <laughs> ha, too late. Thought you were going to get a promotion. <laughs> too late. No, it was engineered by Benjamin Solzer, produced by Nathan Alberson, executive produced by Nathan Alberson and Jacob Menzel, like all fine Warhorn products. Until next time, Super Califragilistic XP. Dosius. It's <laughs> terrible. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Super <laughs> you always hate it when I try to harmonize. I do. I hate it. I don't know why. <laughs>